Welcome to the IT Career Energizer podcast. For anyone who wants to build and grow a career in IT, develop and improve your strengths and skills, be inspired and motivated by the successes of others, manage your career progression, and achieve your IT career goals. And now, your host, Phil Burgess. Welcome to episode 77 of the IT Career Energizer podcast. My guest on today's show is Jeff Atwood. Jeff is an experienced software developer with a particular interest in the human side of software development. In 2004, Jeff started the blog Coding Horror, which led him to founding Stack Overflow and subsequently the Stack Exchange Network, now one of the 150 largest sites on the internet. So Jeff, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. No problem. That's obviously a, a very brief introduction. Um, perhaps you can give us a bit more behind your career and your story. Sure. So I would say the arc of my career was very heavily colored by the blog, which you mentioned. And I started that in 2004 as kind of really an open research notebook into just things I was thinking about in software development, books I was reading stuff that was impacting me and I was thinking about, because I had no real outlet for that at my job because at my job, people weren't, they were interested in software, you know, it, it was a job role there, but it wasn't something that they were obsessed with like I was. So I had more of an obsession. So I was kind of documenting my obsession and wanted to find other people that were as interested in it as I was. And a lot of it was around my recommended reading list. If you go to my blog, there's a link on the sidebar for recommended reading. And that's really the genesis of pretty much all the, the blog. And in fact, the title of the blog, Coding Horror, is a reference to a very famous book for programmers called Code Complete by Steve McConnell. And the logo on the blog is a sidebar illustration from that book. Um, I'll leave the meaning of that as an exercise for the reader. It's not as obvious as some people think it is, but it's it's fun. So there, there is sort of a secondary meaning to, to the words coding horror, and particularly in context of the, the very, very good book, Code Complete, which I recommend to everyone. So setting off on the blog kind of set in motion over about four years, this the, the set of events that would lead me to build Stack Overflow with Joel Spolsky, uh, my co-founder there, who was also another sort of well-known software blogger even before I started. I started in 2004, so I was a little late to the game technically. Right. <laughs> and it's funny because... 14 years on, this all seems ra rather quaint because people don't really blog like that anymore. I mean, I guess it's still there. It hasn't gone away, but it's not this phenomenon like it was in you know, 2004 or even 2008. The world has kind of changed around us. The one thing I have learned is uh, sort of the value of doing things in public is, is really high. And I think that extends to open source as well, not just writing, but just do as much as you can of your work sort of in public. Um, I know it's a little scary, but... I think GitHub was kind of founded on that principle too of like, you know, just take your code, put it up on GitHub. People who are interested will find it and everyone else will effectively ignore it, which is the way the world works. Uh, but those who are interested will find it and kind of beat a trail to your door so you can actually have a conversation about your code or your blog entry or whatever. So the, the really enduring lesson for me is do a lot of your work in public because you gain tremendous benefit from that. And, you know, having my back catalog on the web uh, not just Stack Overflow and Discourse, my current project, but all my writing is is stuff that keeps accruing benefit to me. It's like an investment, technically. It's like opening a savings account, you know, 30 years ago. Yes. And all of a sudden, you have all this money. It's like, wow, <laughs> good thing I opened that savings account, right? <laughs> so 
that's sort of my general piece of advice based on that and sort of the genesis of, of, of where I came from and how I got to be where I am. Yeah, it's obviously a different world now to when you started your blog. Um, I suppose the sort of the advent of things like smart technology in particular and iPhones and, and so forth is really where the changes have happened. Um, putting yourself out on a blog at the time was probably quite groundbreaking. Yeah, I mean, it was. And I think the main change has been the the tenor of the conversation has gotten more rapid. Um, there's less sort of long form talking, which isn't necessarily bad because I, when I wrote blog entries, I wasn't writing like, you know, 10,000 words. I was doing a lot of quoting, a lot of citing of other blogs. So even back in the day, it wasn't like I was sitting down and penning war and peace, these giant like novels for people to read. But I do think the, the, the speed of the conversation has shifted forward considerably with uh, smartphones and also with, you know, smartphones also have another uh, follow-on impact of it's kind of hard to type on a smartphone. Yes. Although I am continually shocked how much people will type when they really are into something like they'll write very, very long posts on their mobile keyboard. Um, But there is, I think, a follow-on impact of the mobile phone coming to dominate so much of computing. It does kind of change. It becomes more visual because you have a camera attached to this device that's always on, and it's easy to take a picture of something, and it's very difficult to write about something in the truest senses of the, all those words. <laughs> you know, a picture is worth a thousand words and all that. It's it's difficult to write. And I think you can also see this paralleled in sort of Instagram is overshadowing Facebook. That was probably their smartest purchase in the long run, because Instagram is all about visual language, which is faster and simpler, right, and more amenable to the mobile phone era. Uh, and things that don't have physical keyboards attached. In that sense, programmers are kind of an anachronism because programmers will always be attached to keyboards. I do think that's true because it's just really hard to be good at your job as a programmer without like a real keyboard. Like I don't think any correct. I'm sure anyone listening to this that, that does all their programming on a smartphone, I would love to hear from you because <laughs> I can't even envision how that would work. But they're one of the last bastions of the old school keyboard mythology, right? Because you kind of need it, right? to do anything with all the symbols we have to type and just all the typing in general. So yeah, yeah, I would say smartphones have radically changed the environment starting around 2010 and onward. Yes. So Jeff, can you maybe share a unique career tip with the IT career energizer audience? One they might not know and should. Uh, I would say, you know, particularly for your audience, when you're starting out, if you're in your first job, I'd say there's a couple guidelines that, that I would generally advise people. One is, Try to always take a job where you're working with people that are all better than you. If you're at a job where you feel like I'm the smartest person at this job, that's a bad job. You're not going to have a good time at that job. You should not be the smartest person in the room at your job. If you are, you need to sort of reconsider where you're going pretty rapidly. So that's advice number one is just make sure you're working with people that you don't necessarily have to admire and respect them, although that's always, I think, a, a big plus is but you do have to feel like wow these I can learn a lot from working with these people right and that applies to the company too like the company the culture not just the individuals but if you could choose only one thing about where you work it's really the people right it doesn't actually matter what you're working on it doesn't actually matter what the job title is none of that stuff really matters what matters is the people that you'll be working with now that sounds odd when you're giving advice to programmers who write code it's like well all I should care about is talking to the computer, right? The computer is the ultimate judge of, (laughs) does my code work? Does my code not work? But that's only superficially true. The reality is your code is judged by the people that use it, first of all, right? Other humans that are using your code. And they they care not for formal correctness. They care 
Can I even understand what this does? Does this do what I want it to do? Does this match my mental model of what is supposed to be happening? There's a lot of subtlety here, but, uh, and also, you know, with, with your coworkers, like how am I working with the other programmers? I mean, very, very few jobs in this day and age are a single coder in a dark room writing all by themselves. I mean, back in the, the seventies and early, early eighties, that might've been true, but any programming job today is all about navigating the waters of, of interacting with other human programmers, right? Like that's, so I think that's the kind of thing you want to optimize for in your job is like, Am I working with really interesting people that are much more talented than I am? You should feel scared working with the kind of people that you should be working with because you can learn so much from them. So that's probably my primary piece of advice. Just pay really close attention to who you'll be working with and what you can learn from them and you know what the, the relative skill levels and that sort of thing. So Jeff, can you maybe tell us about your worst IT career moment and what you learned from that experience? I would say early on in my career, I worked for small businesses. And this is, you know, even back to like 1990, really pre-internet, it was kind of the dark ages for programming because how did you learn? How did you find things out on the internet? I mean, there certainly wasn't Stack Overflow. I mean, that's something we had to build like 10 years on. But even just learning what other programmers are doing, unless you were a super early adopter of like Usenet and like dial-up and you know, you just had no access to other working programmers. And that's why the book Code Complete, which is where the title Coding Horror comes from, was so significant to me because pre-internet, it was a way for me to learn from other very, very talented programmers. Like, what should we be doing? How does this all work? Because I'm working, I was kind of the smartest guy in the room accidentally because the company that I was working at was like seven people, right? It wasn't like a lot of choices for other programmers to work with. And then the people that we hired were people that I hired. So it was just difficult to find it. I I did have one mentor. It's interesting because I had uh, this guy, Bill O'Neill, and I've never been able to find him because his name is just one of those names that's impossible to find on the internet. It's just too common. But I learned a lot from Bill because he had been programming much longer than I had and gave me a lot of feedback early on, mostly around error handling. It was funny how he'd give me some task and code and then he would test it. And he's like, okay, you failed here, you failed here. I mean, in a nice way. He's like, you didn't really test your code. (laughs) Because there's all these things I can do to cause bugs in your code. And we're talking like GUIs here. This is the GUI era. It was like Visual Basic. And it wasn't like it was a command line app, although the same rules would technically apply. There was a lot of user interface stuff that I was messing up. Like, I wasn't validating input length. What if you're you're asking for a number and they enter letters? Stuff like that. It was just funny because like, this seems so rudimentary now that you would have to teach this to another programmer. Because we have so much more access to information through the internet, right? Like there's, there's a lot of stuff like that. So I would say my, all my earliest IT career fails were really about being in isolation and just not knowing what I'm supposed to be doing, right? Like, and how do you even figure it out? So I think it's difficult to be a programmer in isolation today. We're also hyper-connected, which has its own set of downfalls, actually. Um, but the upside is that it's kind of impossible to be in a backwater like I was, this would be in Denver, Colorado, which is a fairly major American city. It wasn't like I was in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the country in a small town. Uh, it was just hard to find programmers to learn from or even figure out what I was supposed to be doing on these projects, right? Like I was solving small business problems as I saw fit with the code that the code tools that I had at the time with very, very little input from the outside. So hopefully the things that set me back are things that kind of don't exist anymore in today's world. I mean, that's my hope. And that's, you know, certainly why we create things like Stack Overflows. The idea is everybody learns from each other and we all get better at it so that ultimately there's less bad code in the world. I hate to say it that way, but that was always kind of the goal is like, 
we want there to be always like informed code people making good decisions about code they don't have to be right they just have to be informed decisions right everybody has the right you know to make the, the wrong decision that's their call but they're informed bad decisions <laughs> not just i didn't know what to do so i picked this random bad option right yeah informed decisions is one of my favorite phrases definitely <laughs> yeah so moving away from your worst IT career moment can you maybe tell us about your career highlight a couple things. Like I got to meet uh, one of my heroes, Clay Shirky. He's done a ton of writing about sort of the human side of, of computer interaction and programming. Huge fan of his work, huge fan of his books. I got to do a talk with him, and I want to say early in the Stack Overflow days, so maybe 2009. Uh, that was a high point for me, working with Joel on Stack Overflow, obviously a high point. And the philosophy of Stack Overflow, I think, was born on all the blogging that I'd done earlier, where what I want to do... It's, it's hard to write a blog. It's hard to figure out what to write. It's hard to figure out how you should be writing. Everything about writing is just hard. <laughs> you know, that's why you should have a blog. Is And in some ways, the smartphone era has made it easier for people to share because it's not like so intimidating. It's like, okay, just put on Snapchat a funny picture or something, right? Like that's a much lower barred entry than think up a blog entry about programming that other people won't laugh at, right? And you also have to get over the hurdle of like, will people laugh at me, which is really a big hurdle, right? Like, Nobody's really going to laugh at you, but you always feel that way, right? Like, I'm going to look like an idiot if I put myself out there. It's like, yes. so part of the bar we were trying to, to get people over on Stack Overflow is, okay, you know, stick to programming. It's these small, fun-sized units of work. You're just answering a question that some other programmer asked. There's no stress. It's just like another programmer like you would be. And, you know, there's other people answering too. It's not like yours will be the only answer on the page. And it just it just encourages people to do these little units of work that in the end lead to something much bigger, like collectively all those small inputs of work create this huge searchable repository of knowledge that kind of moves programming forward. And this is something Clay Shirky had talked about with Wikipedia, where Wikipedia kind of harnessed all this slack time people had that they would just be, I don't know, watching television or listening to music or just not doing anything. They wouldn't be writing, you know, but all these little pieces of writing roll up into this big Wikipedia, which is this huge benefit to humanity. I was very inspired by that whole set of logic. And that really informed uh, what we built in Stack Overflow. And I'm really proud of what came out of that. It's, it's this peer-to-peer -peer learning tool that helps you build itself. And the only downside to Stack Overflow is it is pretty strict and what it'll accept. And like every day, I'm hearing people complain that Stack Overflow is too strict. How dare you downvote my question? How dare you question my question? Right? <laughs> it's a really strict system. And it has to be to get the results that we want. It's not like we wanted to be strict because we're jerks and we like being really strict to, to everyone. It's like, no, no, we have to be strict because like that's how you get the end result of very, very high quality information. Cause you're not, it's not really a place for socializing. It's not a place for hanging out. It's a place for doing work. Ultimately, it's it's a place for working programmers to learn from other working programmers. And there's also a little bit of conflict around new users that come in that are just like, they're not working programmers. They don't really know anything about programming and they're kind of struggling in the Stack Overflow world because that's not really what Stack Overflow was designed to do. It's not the audience that, that I was really designing it for. Uh, I think there's a lot of great sites like Udacity. There's so many places to learn from scratch, but Stack Overflow is really about one working programmer. Whether you have a job or not is immaterial, but you could get a job as a programmer helping another working programmer. So I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of what we accomplished. And I think to the extent that we're building this collective, you know, Wikipedia of programming, that's, that's very humbling. Like that was when people ask me, it's like, when did you know you had succeeded? It's when people were saying, oh, 
this is like Wikipedia. And I was like, oh my God, like Wikipedia is like, if you've ever played the game Civilization, the computer game, there's the wonders of the world. Yep. And Wikipedia is unquestionably one of the wonders of the world, right? Something you would build as a civilization that's like a major milestone in civilization. It's like, if people are comparing my project to one of the wonders of the world, it's like, wow, that's chilling, right? That's chilling in a good way. Like I get chills because that's amazing that we were able to to achieve something even close to that, that people are comparing it to one of the major wonders in civilization. I was like, wow, that's amazing. So Jeff, can I maybe ask you what excites you about the future of the IT industry and careers in IT? You know, it's interesting because I have <laughs> become a bit jaded about programming. Like people ask me, you know, I think people who want to program should be able to program, but I don't view programming as like this this essential skill that everyone should know. I kind of have the auto mechanic view of the world when it comes to programmers. Do you really want a world where everyone is being encouraged to be, you should be an auto mechanic? That's a great job for you. We need thousands of auto mechanics. Because what does that imply about automobiles? If automobiles need that much ongoing maintenance, something is kind of rotten in the state of Denmark, right? <laughs> yeah. You see what I'm saying? Because, like, you're, you're kind of, programmers are kind of plumbers. They're, mechanics, right? They're fixing things. They're, they're building things to some extent, like on an industrial scale. If you work for, you know, I don't know, one of the major tech companies like Apple or, you know, Google or Microsoft. But, you know, I have kind of mixed feelings about that stuff. Like, I don't believe that everyone should know how to code because people should just be using computers. They shouldn't have to be programmers to get things done on their computer because what most people want to do has very little to do with actual programming in the same sense that when you drive a car, you're not thinking, wow, I just can't wait to change the carburetor in this car. That is my idea of a good time, is to take the carburetor out, clean it, and replace it. <laughs> no! When people use cars, they're like, oh, I want to get from point A to point B. I want to see grandma. I want to go on a trip. I want to have fun. These are the things that we should be thinking about as programmers. And in some sense, I feel like the job of programmers is to make sure that we don't need that many programmers. I don't mean that in a self-serving way at all, though it often sounds like, oh, you're just trying to protect your field and you want to be a programmer. You don't want anybody else to be a programmer. It's like, well, no, I just don't want a world full of auto mechanics. Like, I think that's a crazy, crazy world to kind of want. I think there should be a lot of different types of cars. I think there should be electric cars. I think there should be flying cars by now. So I support that kind of innovation. But honestly, like when it comes to my kids and like teaching my kids programming, I'm like, I don't really have a lot of interest in that. Like, I don't think that programming is such a great job that like my kids must absolutely know about that. Now, if they're curious about what I do, I'm happy to show them and teach them. And, you know, essentially they're learning loops and variables. It's like, I don't know, it's just not that sexy of a job to me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's fun for me, but it's not like I want them to find things that they enjoy. You know, I don't necessarily want to project my worldview onto my kids. I want them to find things that they like. And I definitely don't want to create a world where they need to be plumbers or, you know, auto mechanics to get things done. Okay, we're going to move into the reveal round now, which is more of a quick fire round to find out a little bit more about the way you think about um, your career. So what first attracted you to a career in IT? It's about being a kid in a world of things you can't control. And to me, the computer was the one thing that I could control you know, like to an absurd degree, like the computer is kind of the evil genie that does exactly what you tell it to do, even when that's not really a good idea, right? So even though it does exactly what you tell it to do, it's often very extremely unforgiving in the way that it does that, which I think leads to pathologies and people's programmers' personalities, to be honest with you. But I love the world of, you know, 
my dad said to me, you know, I loved video games. He's like, well, you know what you should do is you should create your own video games. I was like, wow, that's really cool, right? Like you could think about your own set of rules and, you know, I've done that. I mean, Stack Overflow is a giant collaborative video game. It's a massively multiplayer text adventure that you're playing <laughs> with other people, right? That's the game. And the cool thing about that game is you learn stuff from it. It's not just pure entertainment. You get something out of it. It's the best kind of game. That's what initially attracted me is sort of like I wanted a world that unlike the real world, which I had very little control of as a kid. And I think most of us have very little actual control of what happens in the world. It's kind of nice to have this world where you can have finite rules that, you know, make sense and reach end states that you can actually comprehend um, and logically process. So I think that's the initial attraction, at least for me. So what is the best career advice you've ever received? I don't know if I've actually received this, but one thing that I've come to believe deeply is that whenever you're at a crossroads and you have to make a decision, you should try to pick the thing that scares you a little bit because the things that the decisions you need to make that are totally safe, that don't scare you at all. Now, I'm not saying go jump off a cliff. I'm not saying that. <laughs> but I'm saying if there's no fear in these decisions that you're making, then you're not really pushing yourself. You know, you're not picking things that are really going to challenge you. They got to be a little scary to be interesting, in my opinion. So I would say that's that's the best advice I've arrived at and continue to advise people is try to make those decisions that make you a little nervous and push yourself to get better. Because you should be failing a little bit, not all the time, but if you're really working at the edge of your ability, you're not always going to succeed. So if you're always succeeding and you're never, you wake up every day, it's like, oh yeah, another day and you're not worried about anything. Not to add to anyone's existential anxiety. I mean, on job level only, please. <laughs> <laughs> you should be pushing yourself. You should be, you know, attempting things that push the boundaries a little bit. Yep. And uh, I, I continue to believe that. If you were to begin your IT career again right now, what would you do? I think it's great because I would start like 15 years ahead of where we started just because there's so much information out there. And everything is so readily accessible. All the stuff that I had to painstakingly pull out of books, <laughs> you basically get delivered to your doorstep. And I guess the challenge now is just there's such a volume of it, of just like parsing through it and figuring out what makes sense. There's just so much information now. So it's almost the opposite problem. But as far as like best practices, like let me give an example, like source control. When I started, like I had never heard of source control. <laughs> <laughs> Which is crazy because, right, that's bedrock to software engineering. But unless you worked, like, okay, where I was, let's, let's talk about 1995. In 1995, unless you were at a pretty enlightened company, you probably weren't using source control really at all. And now, I mean, that's awesome. Like, source control is pervasive and it's easy. You can just go to, you know, GitHub or Bitbucket or wherever, just click a few buttons in your browser and you're good to go, right? That's amazing. So we've come. So far forward as an industry, even in that time period, like that 20-year time period from like not many people using source control. I'm sure people will correct me. Yes, people were using source control in 1995, but it was not like pervasive and it wasn't really easy either. Like the tools we had kind of sucked, like CVS and these were not really great tools. Like it's taken a while to get the tooling where it needed to be. But that's fantastic. You know, I think if I were starting out today, like gosh, you're starting from such a great baseline position of like having the essential tools that we know are important in software engineering. Yep. And what career objectives are you currently focusing on? 
Oh gosh, survival. <laughs> right. I uh, well, right, my project right now is discourse. So to be more honest, like uh, less jokey, rather, <laughs> discourse is a challenging project because if you view Stack Overflow as the Q and A view of the world, it's very data, fact, and science based. Like the engine only works for those topics where answers can kind of be verified. Now, I don't mean a hundred percent. And even in programming, there's usually five good ways to solve any given problem, maybe ten, right? But there's not hundreds. There are not thousands of ways to do it that makes sense. That's why the Q&A engine works. But if you move away from the realm of Q&A to more like social interactions and discussions where there aren't any clear answers of like, I mean, and you get into the really hairy topics like politics and religion and gender, like it's hard to figure out what's even going on. It's hard to keep people from just ripping people apart, particularly online. So with this course, I'm, I'm attacking the much more challenging problem of how do we have interactions online where you just don't feel like you want to take a shower after you've done, right? Like you want to feel good about other humans? Because I do believe, you know, humans are fundamentally good. They want to do the right thing. And what happens with humans is like, we're so emotional that we, we frequently make bad decisions based on our emotions, right? Yeah. So it's just hard to control that stuff. So discourse is a tool that tries to let people have their own communities that don't belong to Facebook, that don't belong to Twitter, that don't belong to Google, that belong to the community where they can have really meaningful interactions with other humans where they kind of learn stuff a little bit. Not It's not really a primarily tool for learning like Stack Overflow, but it's a tool for not letting online discourse devolve into the howling of wolves. And this is a really challenging problem. Plus it's it's open source, unlike Stack Overflow. So the code is, you know, freely available to anyone that wants to use it. And, you know, it's meant to be really pervasive. It's meant to be a world where, yes, Facebook can exist. I don't begrudge Facebook its existence, but I also don't believe, very strongly don't believe, that there should be one centralized monolithic place that everybody goes that's controlled by this corporation in Palo Alto. <laughs> and that's the world. Like every human man, woman, and child on earth has a Facebook account. That's not wrong per se, but I believe in addition to that, I believe in the diversity of thousands, millions of communities that belong to those people that are a part of that community. And essentially diversity online, right? Like the classic view of the internet of this loosely coupled world of communities doing stuff together, whether it's talking about motorcycles or kites or programming, it doesn't really matter. But those communities belong to the people that participate in them, not, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and the yep. board of Facebook. So that's the current problem I'm working on. And what's the number one non-technical skill that's helped you in your career so far? Really writing. It gets back to the blog of like, you need to be able to communicate clearly in writing and that's why practicing that is so valuable in the big scheme of things. And even Stack Overflow is trying to teach you that because the best answers in Stack Overflow are very easy to read. They're clear, they're complete, they're concise, and the words make sense, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not like long form writing, but like being really clear in what you're writing and being very effective at getting your point across without being emotional, without being, you know, because why would you need to be emotional about programming anyway? It's like, you know, this isn't politics we're talking about. This is like, does this code compile? If not, why? <laughs> uh, but being able to be a very clear communicator is so effective. I mean, gosh, there's tons of movies about grifters and con men who they do nothing. They do literally nothing except trick other people by using their words. <laughs> so, I mean, this is a, an incredibly powerful tool. If you can master the tool of communication, you have a job for life at whatever you want to do, basically. And if you're a programmer, being an effective communicator 
unlocks like the highest level of salary that you can get the highest level of advancement you can get so i would say that like mastering those communication skills and stack overflow does try to sort of again trick you into being a better communicator by writing really clear and complete answers and questions so jeff can you share a parting piece of career advice with the it career energizer audience I think I'd go back to my original piece of advice, which is, you know, really try to challenge yourself. Pick things that scare you a little bit. Uh, don't always pick the safe path. Pick the slightly scary path. Pick the path that's overgrown with a bit of weeds. and <laughs> It's a little bit dark in that area, but you don't really know where that's going to go. So I think, you know, try to make those decisions that you feel like are more challenging and that you could potentially fail at. Because when, once you're exploring the more difficult scenarios, that's when you really start to hone your skills and grow. So... Try to pick the scarier thing. And, and finally, what's the best way we can find out more about you and connect with you? Uh, I'm on Twitter as Coding Horror. And of course, my current project, discourse.org, is also a very, very good way to find me. I'm very, very active there. And of course, my blog, blog.codinghorror.com. Those are the main ways. Jeff, thank you so much for joining me on the IT Career Energizer podcast today. It's been great chatting with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I hope it was useful for everyone. My thanks to Jeff for being my guest on today's show. You can find full show notes on the website at itcareerenergizer.com slash e77. In the next episode, I'll be talking with Andy Hunt, a programmer turned consultant, author and publisher. You can get next week's episode and other future episodes automatically downloaded and available to play by simply subscribing to the podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever streaming service you're using to listen. Thanks again for listening, and remember, if you're not growing your career, you're slowing your career. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to the IT Career Energizer podcast. To find out more about building a successful career in IT, visit itcareerenergizer.com.